Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Alicia. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in the medicine by looking to the past and to current events, trying to understand the impact that they have on us as women in medicine and as women in general. Yes. And today we're talking about big pharma. Kind Ooh. of. Not really. But kind of, we're going to be talking a little bit about a lot of things. So we're talking a little bit about research. We're talking a little bit about drugs, a little bit about medication distribution. And I'm going to tell this like big story in parts. And I'm going to use an example for us to understand. So we're going to be pretending that we're making a drug to treat some disease. And so we're going to be. Because the whole podcast episode today is about pharmaceuticals and drug production and the ways that women are incorporated into that and their roles involved in that whole process. So, Shar, do you want to pick a disease that we're going to make a fake cure for? Okay, I just listened to this podcast <laughs> will kill you yesterday on hookworm and how they're trying to find like a vaccine for hookworm infections. So let's do that. Let's okay. do hookworm. Okay, okay. So we're treating hookworm <laughs> and we're going to go from the beginning to the end of the process of making a drug to treat hookworm. So first we'll make it in the lab, then we'll test the drug, then we'll get that drug out to the public and to people who need it. Along the way, we're going to talk about women and their roles in each step of that process. How does that sound? Sounds amazing. Fun. Okay. So first, Shar, as always, go ahead and tell me what you already know about drug development, um, the process, if you know anything, and then maybe if you know of women and their involvement in that process, whether that's them as researchers, as subjects, whatever it is. One for drug yeah. process, I guess. Drugs go through like phases and trials. And mm-hmm. then in terms of women, um, women as researchers aren't really like showcased a lot. I know that they're not really like mentioned in the labs, even though they worked there. And then as study subjects, they're also not a big population of study subjects until very recently. It was required to have both sexes in research studies, but before then, they could have like no women and then make a drug for women. So those are the things I know. Excited to learn more details. That's a very solid foundation. I'm here for that. Oh, thank you. Well, let's get into it. We'll just dive deeper in. So part one is making the drug. So to start, I thought I'd give a brief overview of the process of making a pharmaceutical drug. And a funny aside is that when I started doing the research for this, it was kind of late at night. And my first Google search was just how to make drugs. Dude, you're definitely flagged by the FBI now. I know it was not a vibe. They're definitely like, this is the new El Chapo. (laughs) But it's fine. It's all good. I figured it out. I got some more targeted questions answered and I have some more information. So the first step in making a new medication or drug occurs in basic science labs where researchers design a product 
to reverse the effect of a disease or whatever it is that we're treating. So in our case, we're treating hookworm. So we're trying to figure out how can we make a drug that will kill all the hookworm infection and make sure it never comes back or try to cure it as best as possible. So the researchers will test different molecular compounds and different combinations of compounds as well. And this is what I imagine all of those organic chemistry professors were doing in their research labs (laughs) when we were in undergrad. They were just like mixing up concoctions of compounds. But yes, so all those little professors are working on their little drugs. And once they find a compound that they think is promising, um, can you think of any information that they might be trying to gather about this compound, specifically in relation to the way that it works as a drug? Like they think this thing is a good drug. What are they trying to figure? What are some questions that they want answered about this drug? It's safety versus harm. Um how it would interact with humans. Um, Mm -hmm. You're right. So they're kind of looking at um, mechanism of action. So they're trying to figure out like, how does this drug work in the body? And sometimes you can find out and sometimes you can't. Sometimes they just don't know. But they're looking for that. They're looking for maybe the optimal dosage, if that's like a thing that they can figure out just from, you know, chemical reactions. They're looking at if this has any side effects. But it's hard to figure out those things when they're not doing it on actual living organism. And they start looking at all these things more so in the clinical, preclinical trials and eventually in clinical trials. So in preclinical trials, which we know best as animal trials, we start to ask ourselves some of these bigger questions. And my thing is... For you, Shar, where does gender come into this? Like how are females involved here at this stage of the process, very early in the preclinical trial phase? You gotta have female rat. Yeah. Or female cells, like cell cell lines that come from females. You gotta know that Gila is a girl. <laughs> yes, yes. So in preclinical trials, ideally, even at the very basic preclinical level, research should always be considering sex differences. Because some issues with dosing and adverse drug reactions in women may be a result of lack of attention to how pharmacokinetics differ between drugs in these early trials. So do you happen to know what pharmacokinetics are? I was confused about like (laughs) pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics, but I'm assuming it's just like how the drug interacts with the body and like how it's metabolized and like its half-life and things like that and how it's eliminated from the body. <laughs> yeah, it actually is that. Um and I that's so funny that you asked about pharmacokinetics versus dynamics because that was that has come up for me like in school. Yeah, we learned about both and then I like always get confused which one is supposed to be which. <laughs> yeah, so pharmacokinetics are basically how a drug is absorbed into the body, how it's distributed, how it gets to its target, how it's metabolized, and then how it's eventually excreted. Whereas pharmacodynamics is how the drug, once it is distributed in the body or once it reaches its target, how does it interact with other things? Drugs interacting with other drugs or drugs interacting with food or things like that. So pharmacodynamics is like how the drug changes when it interacts with something it's not supposed to interact with. 
pharmacokinetics is how do we get the drug into the body so that it can be effective? Makes sense. Yeah. Um, But obviously all of these things are important to know about a drug. So even in animal trials, sometimes female animals are underrepresented or not included. Even (laughs) the lady rats aren't allowed in the trials. Like, how is that okay? I've seen things that like say that they don't use like female animals or females at all because of female cycles and how that makes it more confusing for the trial. And I'm like, shouldn't you study it then? If it's making it more Mm -hmm. confusing for how the drug works, then you should probably study it before you give it to female humans and be like, it's fine. We don't know how to interact with you fluctuating hormones each month but you'll be fine yeah you're just little men (laughs) just little men in little hats (laughs) what a throwback it's funny because i can't really imagine a world in which both female and male animal organs or animal subjects aren't used um because my research last year, we had to do, or two years ago, we had to do tests on both females and males, and then we had to analyze them specifically by sex. But I mean, I guess I could see it being possible. I don't know for what reason, maybe the reasons you were saying. But as of 2016, 70% of biomedical experiments didn't report sex as a variable of interest. And less than half of the studies included both sexes in the study sample. Hmm. So, yeah. But it was also in 2016 that the NIH required for the inclusion of both male and female samples in animal studies, which has improved inclusion practices a little bit. But it's still an issue, but it's less of an issue now. And then let's not forget, of course, about female identifying researchers, which we talked a bit about in the episode on vaccine development. But basic science research is obviously incredibly important, but it is also time intensive and not necessarily outcome favorable. Like you might Mm -hmm. be working for years and still not get the outcome that you're hoping for. Um, And there's been pushes for more women to enter STEM fields, but there's always an issue of women in leadership and women being represented properly, etc. And for those of you who don't know, maybe, maybe you don't, but STEM stands for science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And my sister, who's younger than me, will always joke that I, me, am a woman in STEM, but we are not women in STEM, right, Shar? Because like, I, I'm pretty sure we're not because we're in science, but I don't think medicine counts as a STEM field, but maybe it does. And I just don't know. I think we're the S of STEM, but I feel like an engineer is like way more STEM than a doctor because you're doing like, I mean, E is the engineering, but like you're doing math and technology and engineering and science again, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I think in my mind, are women in STEM, are women involved in like computer science, engineering, math, and then also the like other sciences, the hard sciences like physics, chemistry, that kind of stuff. But I mean, maybe we are women in STEM. I, I don't think know. We, I think we can. I don't see myself. Okay, that's kind of nice. You I don't suppose. see yourself as a but- physicist? <laughs> <laughs> Call me Einstein. I don't know. Um, but in terms of getting women into STEM fields and also having them climb career ladders, this is obviously super difficult. 
compared to their male counterparts, women scientists spend more time outside of lab mentoring students and other junior faculty members. They spend more time representing minority folks on panels and committees. And then also they are so often the caregivers to their families, as we know. Mm -hmm. So they actually end up missing out on extra time that is really important for people in STEM to apply for grants, to network, and to take advantage of opportunities to move forward in their careers because they're doing all these extra things. Right. And these are just some of the behind the scenes issues that women face in the realm of academia more broadly. But specifically for our case, these are some of the issues that they're going through when it comes to basic science research and drug development. So I thought it was important to highlight some of those things. Mm -hmm. So we have made a drug, a usable drug. So now we are in part two, which is testing the drug and approving it. We have reached the clinical trial phase. Sweet. Great. So now that we have our drug that functions in basic ways and we know that it won't kill animals, we have to start the next phase, which is the clinical trials. So how do clinical trials work? Well, before these trials, we've already established that the drug is like a baseline level of safe and isn't going to immediately kill anyone that takes the drug. And the trials follow a very thorough protocol developed by the researchers. And there's a lot that goes into clinical trials in terms of getting approval for the trial, deciding how long the trial will run, that kind of thing. There's a lot of questions that need to be answered. Some of these questions include who qualifies to participate in this trial? How many people are going to enroll in this trial? Is there going to be a control group or is it even ethical to have a group that gets no intervention or like a minimal intervention. Right. How are we getting the drugs to the patients and how much of it are we giving? Other questions like what outcomes are we checking for? How do we make sure that these data are analyzed in an unbiased way, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of questions that go into this. And before this entire process starts, the drug developers or whoever's making the drug need to submit an investigation new drug application. So that's like through the FDA. It's this application that they have to fill out. And we ask a lot of these questions that I just read off in that application so we can cover some bases. To move into the different phases, we start with, of course, phase one. So phase one is usually several months long and basically tests the drug on all healthy people, um, usually around 20 to 80 people. And we just want to see how much of the drug the body can handle, what side effects are there, if any, is it baseline safe for people to take? So that's why we give it to healthy people. And around 70% of drugs actually do move on from this phase and enter the next phase, which is phase two. Mm -hmm. In phase two, up to several hundred people within with the disease we're looking at. So in our case, we're looking at hookworm and we have like up to a few hundred people who get divided into groups. And there's either the group that gets the drug and the group that doesn't. But usually the groups don't know 
who's in what group. And this is supposed to help minimize bias. Mm -hmm. And about 33% of drugs move on from this phase to the next phase. So phase two is when we do like control and experimental groups and we give them the drugs. Right. Or one gets a drug, one doesn't. Phase three research is 300 to 3,000 volunteers. And they're all people who have the disease. And here is where the studies have to show that the drug offers a treatment benefit to the population that has this disease. So it's like 300 to 3,000 people who have hookworm get this drug and some of them don't, but it shows that all of them have a better outcome than the current control option. So this is where they're like, okay, not only... Do we have a difference? But this is clearly better. This is a clearly better option than what we currently have. All right, I see. And yeah, and these studies are usually longer and they show a little bit more about like long-term or more rare side effects. And about 25 to 30% of drugs move on to the next phase after this. The last phase is phase four, where several thousand volunteers with with hookworm or with the illness, take the drug and eventually it's approved by the FDA during what's called post-market safety monitoring, which is after it's put out on the market, we're just monitoring it closely to make sure people aren't getting like super, super sick, which happens, but Mm -hmm. we can't have drugs in trials for years and years and years. Otherwise they're never going to get out to the public. So ultimately you have to let your babies fly free. And that's what the (laughs) FDA is doing in phase four clinical trial. (laughs) And so the drug hits the market. So then the question is, where do women come in into all of these trial businesses and all this clinical research? What do women have to do it? Yeah, what are they up to? Well, let me tell you, it ties back, all of it ties back to the FDA and a little bit of history, which is fun because like, that's what we're here for, right? We're here for the history and for the- Always here for the history. So in 1977, Bell-bottom jeans, disco era. 1977, the FDA released its updated guidelines called General Considerations for Clinical Evaluation of Drugs. But in these guidelines, they didn't include women of childbearing potential. Not Like, not childbearing age, childbearing potential. What's the difference? Like, I don't know, you, you could be infertile um, or something like that. But it doesn't matter. That's beside the point. They did not include women like a lot of women. And they said that these women could potentially be included if enough animal fertility and tetralogy studies were done on the drug, which means like tetralogy means like defects and that kind of thing. Um, The problem with making that caveat though, is that this rule kind of became misinterpreted to mean that these women could just be excluded in general from studies because these researchers were like, oh, it's not even worth it to do all this extra work to see if women could qualify. So let's just not include them at all. Oh, is that why so many women are excluded for so long then? Yeah. Especially pregnant women. Yes, yes, that's exactly why. So, and some things that women's health advocacy groups were upset about, among many things, like what do you think were some arguments that they were making, Shar? They were like, oh, what the heck? Why aren't we being included? For what reason? Uh, I feel like I would personally be frustrated if I wasn't included in a research study, because then if you have to take the drug 
down the line, you don't know how it's going to affect a pregnant woman, then it's probably like, how do you know it's safe to take the drug if it hasn't been studied in pregnant women? That's true. And like, I, yeah, that'd be my worry too. And also they were just saying more broadly, like that women's autonomy to make independent decisions wasn't being honored. They were saying that their judgment on balancing risks and benefits to their fetus wasn't trusted. And they were saying that basically these studies were missing half of the population in their testing, which is clearly an issue. And we know that drugs have sex differences. Drug exposure varies between biological females and males for many reasons, including differences in absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion, which can affect the drug response. So a lot of issues with drugs came with dosing because dosing for drugs would be done on men and the higher exposures in women would affect them because of their typically lower body weight. So like, for example, on Dansteron, which is an anti-nausea and anti-vomiting, anti-emetic drug, it, it's often given after chemo or after an operation. And this exact thing happened where the drug dosage was made for men. And so women had one and a half to two times more drug in their blood concentration. It was giving them a lot of side effects. And it also made it Ooh. hard to get rid of the drug in their body. So they would have these bad side effects and they'd have them for longer than they would have if they didn't have that much drug in them. All because the dosing was off. All because the dosing was off. And can you think of any other drugs that are harmful to women, Charlotte? There's that one drug that made the babies come out with no limbs. That's all I could think of. <laughs> yes. Is that That's it? a good one. No. That- oh, man. <laughs> I'm so excited. But you're right. There is that drug. Hold on. Let me look it up. Thalidomide. That is the one. That I mean, that is one of many. But um, I actually have a different example that I was not expecting you to know at all. I did not know about this Damn, either. But I think it was hard questions today. I know. I know. There's no rest. You're on spring break, but you don't. <laughs> you're like you're you're on break, but you need to keep that brain working. It's going to atrophy, Char. <laughs> but. I had this other drug that I found out about that I thought I would share the information for because I thought it was interesting. So it's called ertafitinib, which is, it's a drug that was approved in 2019 by the FDA for a type of bladder cancer where only 21% of participants in this trial for this drug were women. And the researchers made the argument to have more men in the trial because the cancer the bladder cancer was more common in men, except for no one took into account that this specific bladder cancer, though it may be more common in men, had a worse prognosis in women. Mm, yeah, makes sense. But then when it came to talking about breast cancer in men, which is only 1% of the cases people came in for, everyone, all these researchers were going back on their word and they were drafting men from a bunch of different ages and backgrounds and all these different men to be a part of their study. But like, no, only 21% of women. You're going to come up with an excuse. You got to stick to the excuse. Can't change your story halfway through. I know. And like, so this lack of testing on women has had serious, serious consequences. There is this drug called tefetilide. It's also commercially known as 
Ticosin. I've never heard of this, but it's an antiarrhythmic drug. And an arrhythmia, if you don't know, is just when your heart has uneven beats or is consistently missing beats or is having some kind of like electrical impulse problem because it is electrical impulses that beat your heart. And when there's a problem, then you'll have an arrhythmia. And so this drug is supposed to help with arrhythmias, but in large enough doses in the body, it can actually cause arrhythmias. I feel like that's what every anti-rhythmic drug does, though. I feel like every time I learned about one in cardio, it was like, but if you do it wrong, it could cause an arrhythmia. I'm like, that's what you're supposed to be solving. Like, I know. And the arrhythmias that they're creating are like really severe arrhythmias. <laughs> um, and that's exactly what happened here. So there's this one arrhythmia called Torsade de Pointe. Have you heard of Torsade de Pointe? I think I've heard of it just because I watched his sketchy video where there was like a hotel that was like a really big side effect for a couple of the classes of antiarrhythmic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It is. So I didn't watch that sketchy video, but Torsade de Pointe is a particularly dangerous arrhythmia because it's very technical, but it's, it's very dangerous. It's like one of the worst kind of arrhythmias you can have um, because there's no backup for your heart if it gets this. Like if you have one arrhythmia in like the top part of your heart, it's okay because like usually the bottom part of your heart can kind of compensate. But torsade de pointe is when you have a big arrhythmia in the bottom part of your heart and there's no way for your heart to compensate. Gotcha. And so this drug, tofetilide, would, if it's given in higher doses, which it was in women because women weren't included in the testing, women had a three times higher risk of getting torsade de pointe than men. And that's actually, that's so scary. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. All because you couldn't do testing in I a know. trial. I know. So you might be thinking, I don't know if you're thinking this, but you might be thinking. Someone's out there thinking it. Someone out there is thinking, oh, Alicia, if the difference between drugs working on women effectively only has to do with the dosing, then why don't we just calculate our drug doses based on weight? And I'm like, you're right, mystery listener. You are (laughs) correct in saying that a lot of the drug doses can be corrected if we just took weight into account rather than keeping the dose the same for everyone. But we need women in clinical trials to be able to do that dosing. Mm -hmm. And other things besides body weight obviously matter when it comes to the ways that drugs work in our bodies. And so that's why it's really important to consider sex differences at all levels of these trials. For example, hormones have big, big impacts on the way that drugs work. We know that women have a much higher level of estrogen than men, and estrogen also changes in level throughout your lifetime. We know this because in menopause, estrogen decreases, and that can cause different risks. For example, estrogen usually has protective measures um, Mm -hmm. when it's present in your body. So then at menopause, when your estrogen decreases, this is what kind of gets rid of a lot of the protective measures that help your body. So for example, osteoporosis risk increases when you become menopausal. And so then you have a higher chance of fractures. And that's why so many women um, 
at menopause have hip fractures and hip replacements and things like that. It can also, estrogen can also have some not so great effects. In one way, it's really great to have estrogen because it has protective factors against like bone deformities and bone brittle bones. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, it can also have some problematic effects. For example, it increases risk of blood clots, which is why women having a baby or when they're on birth control have a lot of estrogen flowing in them and they need to have special dosing for clotting medications, basically. If you're on a contraceptive, if you're on an oral contraceptive or you just had a baby and you're having like a lot of clotting happening in your body, it's really important to know that when you give a mom or a woman an anti-clotting medication or an anti-thrombotic medication. So like you can cut up any plaques or any kind of thrombi that are like going through your body and can cause blockages and things in your heart, things like that. Yeah. Like blood clots basically. Right. And estrogen is a big factor at play in there. So it's important to know and consider, but they don't get considered. And that's why this is a problem. Very much. Has anything been done about this? The answer is yes. So the FDA updated their guidelines in 1999 and made it so that studies had to report the age, sex, and racial subgroups within the trial. And it stopped letting studies exclude women of reproductive potential, but only for treatment of life-threatening diseases. So if they were doing a trial that was treating a life-threatening disease, they were like, okay, we can probably include women since that's kind of important. Only if it's life-threatening though. Yeah. So maybe women would not be in our hookworm trial unless there's a lot of hookworms in them. Maybe not. Dang it. We got to pick a new disease. We have to start all over. Step one. I mean, that is the energy, it seems. Or we could just include women because it's the right thing to do. Then they would be saved from hookworms as well. I know. We could just include them. That, that could be it. But that's too progressive. We can't do that. So the most recent guidelines by the FDA were released in 2009, and they specifically involve changes in how we label prescription drugs to make them easier to understand. So when you look at our drug for hookworm, on the back, it'll have the product name. It'll have any box warnings like black box warnings or just box warnings are just really clear signs that a drug could be bad for your health or have an effect on your health. So for example, Accutane has a black box warning. Oh, for like pregnant women? Mm-hmm. Or just like women of reproductive age. That's why if you want to start Accutane, you either have to get on birth control or have to sign a waiver that you're going to remain abstinent. I don't know. That's crazy. That just shows like how awful Accutane is for a developing baby. Yeah. It increases your risk of cleft palate, which is like when the baby has a defect in the roof of their mouth. It can cause congenital heart defects. Yep. It intellectual disabilities. Well, that makes sense as to why they don't let babies get, or they definitely don't let babies get on Accutane, (laughs) but that's probably why they don't let moms. (laughs) The OB-GYN is just looking on the ultrasound and it's like, oh, your baby's having a lot of acne. 
You're like, yep, that's my baby. Makes sense. (laughs) But those are box warnings. Other labels that they have are like any changes that were made to this drug, um, certain indications for usage, contraindications. So like, when should I not be taking this drug? Any other warnings, side effects, things like that. So that was what the FDA released in 2009 to be more upfront and more transparent about what's in their drugs. And the goal of these revisions was to improve the safety and efficacy of prescription drugs and also to help prevent medication errors because they wanted to prevent someone taking the drug because they didn't understand the information fully and then taking it wrong or taking it inappropriately or something like that. Makes sense. So that's what's been done generally for like women inclusion in clinical trials. They have tried to include more women of reproductive age, reproductive potential, um, women in general, but there's definitely a long way to go and we can continue talking about that. But I want to get into our third part, which is getting the drug to the public. Okay. We've gone through part one and part two. We have made a drug. We've successfully made it through the clinical trials. We are ready to make money off of this drug, Charlotte. Our hookworm drug is going to be a hit. All the big bucks. So we have made it. We have our drug and it's made it through all these rigorous clinical trials. We're able to get it to the public. But how the heck does the public even find out about drugs? Commercials with ladies dancing. <laughs> what? You cannot tell me that not every, every drug commercial is a lady dancing. I'm totally <laughs> right about that. I always felt like drug commercials, the most salient drug commercials to me in my brain are the ones of like, the ones for like Cialis and like Viagra, <laughs> where they're like doing like a really mundane task holding towels. And then suddenly the the narrator is like, you never know when a moment is going to be the right moment. <laughs> and you want to be ready for that moment. Papa Viagra. <laughs> like that's actually what these drug commercials are. And they're so funny. So I don't know about dancing women, but I'm sure you're right. Oh, okay. That's how I think they get to the public. We hear about drugs through commercials and also from our physicians. But how do our physicians find out about new drugs? Sure, they might keep up really well with the literature and they happen to know about new drugs, or maybe they've heard about some fancy drug by word of mouth. All of these things are possible. But this is kind of a tangent, but still related. Have you ever seen the movie Love and Other Drugs? I have not. I've never even heard of it. It's about this girl, Anne Hathaway. (laughs) who has Parkinson's and she's like pretty young, which is like also upsetting. And she falls in love with this kind of like bad boy, ladies man, pharmaceutical rep who is Jake Gyllenhaal. (laughs) Yeah, it's a cute movie. You should check it out. But (laughs) the key thing about that whole story is the pharmaceutical rep part. Very important. Very. That was the whole point of that tangent because pharmaceutical companies have all these sales reps that are supposed to develop professional relationships with physicians. And once they do that, they have a higher likelihood of getting that physician 
to prescribe their company's brand of drugs to their patients. And so that's how patients find out about different drugs often Mm. is through their physicians who find out through pharmaceutical reps who are like wooing them basically. Right. Yeah. And big pharma spends billions, truly billions of dollars each year targeting physicians and advertising to them. They will dine with them, give them gifts, just all the shebang. And for women physicians, they definitely know how to advertise to us. They are very careful not to use sexist language or to show preferences for their towards our male colleagues because there's studies that have shown that female physicians don't respond well to that, which I don't know why they, well, how could they not? What a mind-blowing, groundbreaking study. <laughs> So they're like really careful around female physicians and they also target nurses a lot. Um, And there was a book published in 2018 about this and how it was basically normalized to have sales reps in operating rooms, in patient care units, and just in care centers in general, giving out free things. That's so weird. Imagine doing surgery and someone's like, have you heard of Flavanserin? You're like, <laughs> I, I'm literally doing surgery right now. Like, I don't understand what? how that's possible. But like, thing is too, besides the fact that they target physicians and nurses and healthcare staff, they also target female physicians through female patients. And the big ways that big pharma target female buyers ties really well into the medicalization of female bodies. So for example, premenstrual dysphoric disorder, also called PMDD, is a psychiatric disorder reserved for women in their menstrual age who basically have really bad PMS or premenstrual syndrome. So they have really severe irritability, depression, anxiety, etc. And to treat this disease, They, as in pharmaceutical companies, have rebranded an antidepressant, Prozac, um, into a different treatment called Serafem. Both of them do the same exact thing. They're SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, Mm -hmm. which basically are drugs that work at your brain cells to increase the amount of serotonin so that you feel happier. And they are also used to like relieve anxiety. And so they basically took like an already working antidepressant and then they just rebranded it under a different name and used that as their treatment for PMDD. Interesting. Yeah, it is. It is. And I'm super, super here for SSRIs. They're a really wonderful example of a drug that works on many levels. 75% of psychiatric cases are undertreated anyway. So I'm super here for like providing people with the medication they need. But I invite you, Shar, and then all of our listeners to just consider Um, I'm not saying like what is right or what is wrong. I don't know the answer, but I just invite you all to consider the risks and benefits of providing such medications for, for certain issues, because I totally recognize that PMDD is likely a very real diagnosis for many people and receiving diagnosis can be very relieving. Mm -hmm. Um, especially when you feel like your symptoms are too much to handle, but I also 
am very weary of the medicalization of female bodies, as I mentioned, and having this disease that's effectively a very severe PMS. Um, and then knowing that the treatment is basically just an SSRI that can be used to treat like general anxiety, something mm-hmm. about that doesn't sit quite right. So would love for you to all sit with it and think about it and, you know, come to a conclusion on your own. Right. But this is kind of similar to flibanserin. We've talked about this before. That drug that was used to treat female sexual dysfunction, it's kind of similar with the whole medicalization issue. And the thing is, women will see content for this drug, for flibanserin, for um, they'll see female sexual dysfunction or, you know, really severe PMS. Um, They'll see things like that in their homes, on the internet, in their TVs. and like a lot of magazines. Apparently in 2010, there was a study that found that like a lot of women's magazines had drug ads in them. But seeing content like this all the time, like in your life, women often will come to their doctors wondering if there's something wrong with them or if they need to be worried about having a certain condition, et cetera, et cetera. Because honestly, the longer you sit with something, the longer you like read about something, the more you can convince yourself that you have it. And doctors are supposed to give their best medical advice. But if you're a woman who's hell-bent on getting a certain medication because you believe it's going to be helpful for you in the long run, like unless it was detrimental or like really not helpful, a doctor isn't going to say no if you want to start taking a certain drug. Because at least in my understanding, medical training involves like believing your patient to an extent, supporting that with facts and figuring out how you can best serve your patients. And so if you as a female, as a woman are distressed about a condition you believe you may have, the doctor hopefully is going to pay attention to that. But on the other hand, we have to consider why she's concerned about this issue now Mm -hmm. and think about the roles that big pharma and advertising and commercials have played in pushing women to make certain decisions about their bodies. But that's part three. It's really messy and complicated and confusing. And so I think this is a good place to pause and maybe take all of that in and then process it a little bit together. Sounds good. Let's do it. So I know that was a lot of a different, it was like a lot of moving parts, a lot of parts coming together. But it all blended so well. It did. I mean, it it is all one big story. It's just a complicated story. Um, Thoughts about it. I thought the story was very well put. It made sense. Went to the trial. We figured out how to treat hookworm. It was a great adventure. <laughs> I learned lots. Um, one thing I thought was pretty crazy from it that I didn't already like know in some capacity was how the big pharma courts physicians, but specifically female physicians in its own way, I thought was like crazy. Instead mm-hmm. of making moves on male and female physicians alike 
They have specific methods of how to get to female physicians. Female physicians aren't a different breed of physician. I don't, I don't know. I thought that was kind of shocking. Yeah. Well, honestly, I didn't look as much into it because I was focusing on like the female aspect, but part of me thinks I should go back and look at the ways that they target male physicians, because I actually think they spend more time specifically targeting male physicians because they're, they feel like there's so much that male physicians can, can do, you know? Yeah. That's true. Um, but I'll have to go back and look at that. Or there's like many ways to access like male physicians. Like something I've been thinking about a lot is like this idea of networking. And part of me always wondered, oh, I think it's so silly that, you know, people emphasize or even bother learning like country club sport. In my head, I'm like, that's silly. Like I had this conversation the other day with someone. We don't know golf or know anything about golf, but like maybe it's smart to learn something so you don't look like an idiot if you need to talk to people you know, and network with people. Well, yeah, because it's such a big networking thing because dudes will literally get together. They'll like hang out with their mentors and go golfing. And like, that's just all this, you know, face-to-face time to like get to know these dudes or they'll like go to basketball games together and stuff, hang out. And that's just not the way that I have connected with mentors personally. I don't know if you're secretly an amazing golfer. I am personally not at all. (laughs) Not even a little glow in the dark putt putt action. That's not not even a little. But yeah, that's I was thinking about like networking a little bit and and um I'm interested in seeing how like pharmaceuticals like target male male physicians too. Right. Yeah, that's that'd be interesting. The other thing I was thinking about was I mean, something that I personally was like intrigued by were these guidelines that the FDA put out and just how vague they seemed in many ways. Um, And especially how the language used by the FDA in the original 1977 version of the guidelines, single misinterpretations of that clause led to women basically being cast out of most research studies because of that one clause. And that was really poignant. Yeah, that's crazy. No, yeah. And I thought that was interesting. And I think that ties into my next question pretty well. Because so when I was thinking about research a little bit and the role of women in both conducting that research and being a part of that research, I think we're doing a lot and we're making movement forward. Like we're no longer back in 1977 with those certain guidelines. We have since evolved, but what else do you think we need to do to support women in realms of science and research and drug development? I mean, other than things we've talked about the past a lot, like in mentorship and having those support systems but I my first big thing I don't think we've talked about much is like funding funding for yeah in research is huge because if you don't have the same funding you're not gonna be able to do your research no matter how well mentored you are like how well prepared you are anything how smart you are if you don't have funding you can't do it that's huge is like getting the funding for women so I feel, I feel like that's like a huge area where they need the most support yeah that's so so true and I was also thinking about what I was saying before about like 
female researchers and just the ways in which other responsibilities are tacked on to their responsibilities. So female researchers spend more time on average mentoring younger students and they spend more time being caregivers in their homes and they spend more time doing, um, you know, a lot of minority outreach and being representatives as like minority individuals in the field. Right. And I think all of those things individually, they seem like not a big deal, but collectively. And they're taking away time that their male colleagues are not spending. And those colleagues are using that time to get forward in their careers and move ahead. And I think that was really salient for me. Yeah. Um, and so being aware like within fields of research and drug development and academia being aware of the roles of women the societal roles of women and considering them in the roles that these people play in an academic setting it's kind of like what we're saying about drugs right it's like not all drugs work equally for men and women same thing is like the roles that we assign need to be tailored to who we are as people and we are not defined by our gender but our gender does play a role in our lives and so considering that when assigning roles to women um is something we need to consider maybe we should spend more time encouraging men to take on more mentorship positions so that women have one less thing on their plate like that yeah. could be something we could do i like that point because i think a lot of talk is about like how can we change societal views of women so that women aren't always the caregivers which of course would be great to happen down the line but for that to happen it takes like a lot of other factors too so if like males can take yeah. off time there needs to be paternity leave a lot of things don't have so that like is a barrier to men taking off time to be child like carers so i don't know i think it being more like midstream in the moment is just giving women a chance to do what they need to do without seeing it as taking up like going backwards in their career because I know in academic medicine yeah. you have to be publishing papers like yearly and publish relevant papers and like doing research and blah 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 and you do that in your time you're not working as a doctor and it shouldn't be right. seen as like taking a step back in your career or like advancing in comparison to male counterpart just because you're like like you right. said has, you have other roles you need to accomplish yeah I think you make a good point super valid super relevant indeed and then the other question i had was thinking about how the newest drug on the market might not be the best drug for every patient and so how can we as physicians and healthcare providers be better about critically analyzing the role of pharmaceutical companies in our lives because their job is to push new drugs to us to prescribe to our patients. That's what they're doing. They're advertising. And so what can we do to critically analyze their role in our lives and maintain boundaries? I mean, I have yeah. no idea how this works because we have yet to be physicians in this position. So I don't know like what goes down in those conversations, but my initial thoughts would be just making sure that the companies that you're working with are like ethically based have missions that you align with are really like mm. focused on the patient more than just I mean they're trying to push the drugs out but ultimately 
they're going to be working for the patient as well. Like one of our friends just talked about how he wants to work in big pharma basically because he wants to be able to treat more patients, yeah. you know, like on a larger scale than a physician can, which I thought was like a really great reason to go into farm research. And so I think just knowing the companies you're working with and with the people and being able to like have really transparent conversations about when they're advertising to you and so you can, um, you know, like actually talk about what the drug's trying to do and if they're just trying to push it on you or if it's actually going to help your patients. And then also I think um, it's on the physician a little bit too, that when a drug comes out, say the, um, the serotonin drug we we're talking about, they're not mm-hmm. just prescribing a drug because a, a patient brings it to them. Like you're supposed to believe your patients and listen to them, but also yeah. you as a physician should make the diagnosis for yourself to yeah. run the test, like listen to your patient, do what you think needs to be done to like actually make sure they have a diagnosis before you prescribe a drug that they might not need. That's just made them like yes. people feel like they need them because of the advertising. Cause advertising is tricky. They smart. Like people go to people get degrees in this, like marketing and advertising is very psychological and genius. And yeah. so you need to, as a physician, be smart enough to be able to talk to your patients and the companies about what is actually right for them and for their actual diagnoses. No, that is so true. We are diagnosticians. Like that is what we are as clinicians, but also physicians. That's like a big part of our role. So right. That's what differentiates doctors kind of being from clear. other healthcare providers a lot of times. Right. Like you were making right. the diagnosis. That is your like role is to be the person that can make the final diagnosis. Um, so you need to do that with big pharma too, to make sure that the drug's the right thing that patient needs. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I was also thinking about kind of what you were saying, like not all pharmaceutical reps are bad. Like it's not this thing that we can avoid, but something I was thinking about is that we as physicians and scientists have to do our research on a drug. So if a new drug comes out and like a pharmaceutical rep is like, oh, look at this drug. It came out. It would be great for you, blah, blah, blah. It's on you as a physician to go in, do the lit search, do your research and like use your brain to learn more about this new drug. Are there off-brand products that could be used? Because something that we're not considering at all in this conversation is the cost of these medications. Yeah. And there's so much more money to be gained by the pharmaceutical companies by buying a brand name, but Oftentimes, I mean, most of the time, the cheapest drugs are just regular um, off-brand, like unbranded names. Mm -hmm. And there's websites like GoodRx and like other websites will help patients find the cheapest options for the drug that they need with the active ingredients that they need that are significantly cheaper than brand name drugs. So those are other things we have to consider is like, what is the feasibility for our patient? right? Because if they don't have insurance or if they do have insurance, but insurance doesn't cover X, Y, and Z, we have to make sure that our patients have accessibility to the drugs that they need to live and be healthy. Mm-hmm. And sometimes ph- pharmaceutical companies can't provide that. Yeah, no, that's so true. Especially with big farm prices go up very fast. Yeah. And then the last thing I was just going to say is like a more broad picture. Um, but I think it's just important that like we are probably moving into it. I don't know. But what I hope is that we're 
moving into spaces where profit-motivated work is being removed from healthcare. The fact that pharmaceutical reps are present in ORs and on patient floors, like that shouldn't be okay. And maybe that's not the case. And I like, maybe that was just what I read on the website that was talking about this book um, that was discussing this topic, but that would be crazy to think about. Healthcare is a business and you don't, you don't know that now. No, learn it. (laughs) Really not great. Should not be a business, but it is. But that's all I have for us today. Oh, that was my excitement scream. (laughs) Excited. I liked the journey of the building a drug together. That was fun. And I learned a lot through it. So if you like this episode, feel free to subscribe on all the apps. We're available everywhere you can get podcasts. And then if you like this episode and you want to rate and review it, Apple Podcasts is the best place for that. Yeah, and then you can also check out our social media. We are from Skirts Scrubs on Instagram and on Facebook. You can also check out our website, which is from scrubs.com, where you can learn about more information on Alicia and I. You can learn about our episodes more, such as reading our show notes or our sources. You can also check out our merch that we have now, which is very fun and exciting. So definitely check that out. It's super, super fun. And as our podcast grows, we're interested in doing more collaborations and making bonus content for you all. So if you or someone you know is interested in working with us, shoot us an email or DM us on Instagram and we will definitely get back to you. We sure will. And lastly, as always, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yes. See you next time. See you next time, guys. Bye-bye.